Hello and welcome to Spotlight with Sandhya. Our guest today is a member of parliament and a former cabinet minister. He is in the news almost every day. But today, the focus is going to be on Jairam Ramesh, the author. His latest book, The Light of Asia, is an unusual one as its focus is on a poem. Welcome to the show, Jairam Ramesh. Good evening, uh, Sandhya. Delighted to be with you. You're a Rajya Sabha member from Karnataka and you do have roots here. So, Kannada Bharata, Nilge? Channak Bharata. I was born many decades ago in Chikmagalur. Okay. Uh, my mother still lives there. Uh, my cousin lives there. Uh, I studied, you know, uh, two years in Chikmagalur when I was a kid. And of course, I think the pool of coffee will always be there, right? Whichever part of the world a Kannadiga is. Although, you know, surprisingly, I'm more of a tea drinker. I developed a fondness for coffee, uh, you know, over a period of time. It's an acquired taste. All right. You know, Jaira, you do many things and you do them all well. Uh, you were an engineer. You became a policy expert. You're an economist. And you got into politics and you became a cabinet minister. And along the way... You were a newspaper columnist and you anchored television programs, which is when I first got to know you. And in the last few years, not counting your day job of holding up the grand old party, you've churned out a book a year. Now, I want to know from the horse's mouth, is it true what Abid Hussain said about you? That Jairam has the highest IQ of anyone I've ever met and he has the energy of 10 horses. Did he say that? No, no, no. No, no, no. That was Mr. Abid Hussain, uh, you know, one of my early bosses, uh, one of my mentors and one of my favorite people who, you know, who wrote, you know, forward uh, to, to a report which I contributed to. No, no, no. That's not the truth. The fact is that, you know, till 2014, I hardly had any time to write books. You know, I'd written two books. One was an anthology of all my articles that had appeared in India Today. Um, uh, and the other one was also an anthology of my newspaper articles that had appeared in the Telegraph. Uh, but after 2014, uh, thanks to Mr. Modi, uh, you know, in this, uh, uh, the fact that, you know, we were forced to sit in the opposition the last seven years. Um, so I have actually, uh, this is my eighth book, uh, The Light of Asia, the poem that defined the Buddha is the eighth book in seven years. Uh, and um, I have to thank Mr. Modi for awakening uh, the author and the writer in me because, um, you know, I've had extraordinary uh, amounts of time for research, for going to archives, uh, you know, for doing a lot of uh, research uh, and, uh, and then writing this book, which I didn't have, uh, unfortunately, before 2014. However, best However much I wanted to write, you know, uh, just couldn't find the time. So I'm hoping that my book writing phase will end in 2024. Fingers crossed then. <laughs> well, I'm giving my fingers crossed, certainly. You initially wrote, uh, you know, books about policy issues on India's economic liberalization, its relationships with China. What inspired you to get started on, on becoming a biographer? Well, you know, uh, I've written three biographies. Uh, one biography was an environmental biography of Indira Gandhi. 
The other one was a biography of P. N. Huxer, who was, you know, one of India, perhaps the most influential civil servant India has ever produced. And he was Indira Gandhi's alter ego, an ideological compass. And the third biography, of course, I, I wrote was on the colorful and the multifaceted V.K. Krishnamenon. Uh, so these were three bi political biographies of public figures that I have written. Uh, and the reason I wrote the biographies was I was interested in them, uh, number one. Number two, they had made major contributions. They were, they were major personalities in their own right in Indian public life. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, Sandhya, uh, you know, they left behind a large amount of archival material, you know, contemporary written material in archives, both in India and abroad. So these biographies are, these three biographies are not judgmental biographies. They are narrative biographies. They are biographies that are based on archival evidence. They're not based on oral history or interviews with people. They're based on archival evidence, on, on availability of papers in the public domain. I didn't have any special access, by the way. These are all, you know, papers that are available to any historian, any scholar uh, in archives, both in India and abroad, provided you have the uh, time and the, the inclination to do the research. Uh, so uh, the availability of archival material uh, became a very key factor. Now, for example, I would love to do a biography of Mr. Kamaraj, you know, one of the greatest chief ministers India has ever produced. And when I talk to some of my friends in Chennai, uh, scholars of Tamil politics, they said, good luck if you can find uh, anything written by Kamaraj, uh, you know, uh, which would form the basis of a biography. The only thing that he would write on files is a signature. So, you know, I've not, I've been deterred from doing a biography of, of Mr. Kamaraj. Uh, so um, the availability of archival material was, was key uh, to the choice of the three subjects that I had in my political biographies. I've written a book on the 1991 economic reforms, uh, but that's, I was involved in that. I was a participant. Uh, again, I had a lot of, um, uh, this was not based on my memory. Uh, it was based on all archival material that I uh, had in my possession, which I had kept, my own papers. Uh, I wrote a, a book on um, the bifurcation of Andhra Pradesh, uh, which again, something that I was involved in, uh, again, based on you know written material, a book on the making of the land acquisition law of 2013, uh, when I was rural development minister. Uh, and a book on environment, which uh, is really a record of the 26 months that I was Minister for Environment between 2009 to 2011. So, you know, um, my, my books are, you know, are, are quasi-academic in a way. You know, they're based on research, heavily footnoted, heavily referenced. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't... Uh, I, I, I try to keep a distance uh, from the books that I write. You know, the idea of writing a book is not to project oneself, but to project the subject, uh, you know, of, of what you're writing. You know. But how do you keep bias away? I think that would be quite a challenge, isn't it? Not to bring in uh, your views or looking at the subjects through the lens, your personal lens. How do you filter it out? Well, you know, in the case of the political biographies, it's very difficult. You know, you have right. to be dispassionate. Right. You have to be objective. Uh, you know, uh, there are many things about Indira Gandhi 
uh, that I admired uh, many things that I didn't like. I mean, you know, for example, uh, you know, in the emergency was indefensible. You know, it was a uh, it was a colossal error of judgment on her part. Uh, and that, you know, I have to face up to it, you know, similarly with Mr. Haksa and certainly with Mr. Krishna Menon, you know, who was a very colorful uh, and a very effervescent character. Uh, and um, he was an eminently, um, you know, there's much in him uh, to admire, but he was, he was also an eminently dislikable man. You know, and, well, you know, as a biographer, what is the role of a biographer? And I, for me, um, unfortunately, most biographies end up either demonizing people uh, or valorizing them. You know, they, you either have a hagiography or you have a demonography. Uh, and I was, um, I, was I, I, I was determined to avoid the extremes and that my job as a biographer is to put the information of the biography the guy who's the person who's being right. whose story I'm telling uh, to put all the information in the public domain, uh, and you know let the reader make up her mind or his mind about you know what is. So it's not judgmental, you know. It's it's not it's not to demonize somebody. It's not to valorize somebody, but it's to, it's a narrative, you know, based on a written record. So I have to keep a distance. I have to be objective. Uh, and uh, as a biographer, and particularly as an archival biographer, uh, there is a tendency uh, to discard the material which you think may be embarrassing uh, for the person whose book you're writing. Uh, but then, you know, I, I decided that intellectual honesty, uh, whatever uh, scrap of paper I find, uh, you know, must, must find its way. Uh, in the biography, uh, and uh, for example, let me give you an example of the uh, of the problems I faced. Uh, there's one letter uh, in uh, in 1939. Uh, I think it is in October 1939, December 1939, which uh, Nehru writes to Krishna Menon. This is in my Krishna Menon book, uh, and you know Nehru and Krishna Menon had hundreds of letters. Uh, the person other than Indira Gandhi to whom Nehru wrote the maximum was to Krishna Menon. Uh, they were very close. They were soulmates for almost 25 years. So in 1939, late 1939, early 1940, Nehru writes to Krishna Menon saying, I'm physically exhausted. Uh, I'm mentally uh, very, very disturbed. Uh, I'm having some sort of a breakdown, an emotional breakdown. Uh, I'm, I'll come out of it. Uh, but, you know, these are difficult times. These are very tough days. And I just want to share with you, you know, my, uh, the trauma that I'm going through. I found that a letter, an unusual letter, you know, uh, the Nehru is writing to Krishnamanan, who is in London. Uh, and I, you know, for a couple of weeks, uh, I kept that letter with me saying that, does it make sense to include that letter in the Krishnamanan biography? I said, well, you know, it, I would be dishonest if I didn't include this letter. But then the question is, why did Nehru write this? You know, why did Nehru tell Krishna Menon in 1939-1940 that not only is he physically exhausted, but mentally and emotionally uh, very disturbed and drained uh, by news that he had received? And then, you know, uh, after doing research and after doing some thinking, it struck me that the reason why Nehru wrote to Krishnamanan was because he disapproved of Indira Gandhi's marriage uh, to Feroz Gandhi. Oh. Uh, you know, for almost for almost a year, uh, there was, um, you know, there was a, 
there was you know considerable uncertainty uh, you know for a number of reasons uh, firoz gandhi was a parsi uh, nehru came from a you know orthodox brahminical family i mean he was not orthodox but his family was orthodox uh, and uh, so i think he was opposed to the marriage and you know that comes out in most uh, biographies of nehru and indira gandhi now uh, the question was should i should i say this in the book or not you know uh, uh, and i said look i'm not writing this book as a congressman you know i'm writing this book as somebody uh, who wants uh, to you know who's bringing out uh, a personality of a man who's made major contributions Uh, to indian political history so i included it you know so uh, some of my friends in the congress party were not happy uh, i mean one or two people said why did you include it what does it mean similarly on my biography of indira gandhi although the biography is only on her environmental record it's an environmental biography how can you write on indira gandhi without drawing attention to the emergency for example uh, or the issue of forced sterilizations Uh, you know, in between 1975 and 77. So there again, you know, I faced a choice: should I, shouldn't I? But I did, you know. And um, so, you know, these are these are you know some choices that biographers make. I did not, in any of the three biographies, use any oral material. You know, I didn't use any anecdotes, or I didn't use he said this, and uh, you know, um, this was what was said. because you know uh, indians as uh, we we are great uh, we are great at fiction you know we are great at inventing facts we are great at uh, you know redrawing uh, history so to speak um, we are not a written culture as you know uh, ramayana the mahabharata these were all you know oral we had a we have a long 3000 year 4000 year oral tradition written traditions are not very strong in india so Uh, that decision that you know uh, to write a biography based only on contemporary written sources uh, is a rule that i have scrupulously followed why do you think these stories are relevant to the present you know these political biographies what impact well, no, these are these are uh, these are people uh, indira gandhi krishna menon nehru um pn haksa these are all people who have made major contributions now you can you can argue about them I and mean, you can have you know you can argue that nehru made wrong decisions when it came to uh, say kashmir or china or, you know the economy or krishna menon uh, took disastrous decisions as defense minister which, which cost us horribly in 1962 we can we can argue on that but these are Uh, these are controversial personalities but they, they are also very consequential personalities so i think you know the fact that they are consequential that the fact that they played such decisive roles uh, in indian political history make them subjects for for biography they're not boring people you know uh, they're charismatic in their own right uh, they're charismatic they are they are colorful they are consequential and they're also controversial you know so I think that's that's what makes a story. So, will you be writing about Rajiv Gandhi's political alter ego or Sonia Gandhi? Oh, I thought, you know, I think Rajiv Gandhi is too 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 recent, okay. uh, and I was too closely involved in that period. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there are there's a biography of Nehru, which I am you know working on, which I have been working on for quite some time, off and on, <clears throat> and my friend Ram Goha keeps. 
prodding me, you know, from time to time to complete that biography. So maybe I'll get around to doing that. I'm also right now working on a biography of an Indian scientist, uh, Obaid Siddiqui, you know, who was responsible for setting up the National Center for Biological Sciences in Bangalore. Uh, and earlier, he had set up the Molecular Biology Unit at the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research in Bombay. I mean, he's in one of the foundational figures of Indian molecular biology. Uh, and through the uh, life of Ubaid Siddiqui, uh, you know, I am uh, revisiting uh, the process of institution building in science uh, in uh, Nehruvian India in the 50s and 60s. So that's a biography I'm working on uh, right now. You are a quintessential outsider to politics. You had no family political connections from what I gather, but you became very successful. And you've been part of, uh, you know, the huge transformation that India's body, body politic and economy has gone through. And you've been responsible for quite a few of those changes yourself. So when can we expect your autobiography? <laughs> never, never. Why is autobiography? No, no, no. Autobiography. I mean, they're self-serving, you know, they're really self-serving. And uh, I, I, I don't like, uh, you know, somehow, you know, this whole memoir writing. Uh, is, is something that uh, I am not, uh, you know, uh, frankly, you know, uh, I, I, I can't put myself uh, at the level of a Huxter or Indira Gandhi or Menon or Nehru, you know, fine. I've had opportunities. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I'm realistic enough. And there are many things that, you know, I can't speak, I can't say. I mean, you know, certain things uh, should, should remain with oneself, you know. One can't be brutally honest all the time. It has its it has its limits. So no, no, I'm not going to write an autobiography. Certainly, that's not that's for sure. But yes, I mean, um, uh, I didn't come from a political background. Uh, I don't have political. Uh, one could say that I have a degree, but I don't have pedigree. You know, I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't have. A, you know, I don't come from a political family. Uh, but I have been extraordinarily lucky. I got good breaks. I worked in the government. Got you know became a member of parliament, became a union minister. Uh, and, you know, I've had, I've had good opportunities of working with people. I worked with Mr. Sam Petroda very closely. Um, and then uh, when I joined the Congress party, uh, you know, uh, I became, uh, you know, sort of an office bearer in the Congress party, got exposed to Mrs. Sonia Gandhi, Dr. Manmohan Singh and others, Mr. Pranam Mukherjee. Uh, and others. And, you know, I got many opportunities. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was lucky. I mean, you know, I was lucky. I didn't come from a political family. I didn't have a political background, but uh, I hung in there, you know, uh, I just hung in there. And um, see, you've got to have resilience in politics. You know, the trouble with most professionals in politics, including some of my very good friends, um, the trouble with professionals is they all want to join at the top. They all want to join uh, you know, uh, to become ministers, you know, <laughs> or to hold office. Uh, you know, I joined the Congress Party. When, you know, when I became an office in the office builder in the Congress Party, we were out of power, you know. Um, and uh, for six years, I mean, you know, I was an office builder in a, in a party that people had written off. They said, Congress Party is never going to come back to power. India is shining, right? Remember those years of Mr. Vajpayee, Mr. Admani, so, you know, politics, you got to have resilience. It's, you, know, it's, you know, often described it as 80% down and 20% up. Uh, you got to have the resilience 
to withstand the shocks. I mean, for example, I've been out of power uh, for the last, I mean, we've been out of power, not I, the party has been out of power for the last seven years. Uh, and um, I've used that time. Uh, I'm still very active in the Congress party. I'm a member of parliament, chairman of, uh, you know, a standing committee. Uh, I speak on behalf of the Congress party occasionally, spokesman of the party. Uh, but at the same time, I've developed a parallel track, you know, of keeping myself intellectually busy, intellectually, you know, always challenged by writing these books. So we can talk about your latest book now. It's very fascinating. I've, I don't think I've, there's ever been a person who's written the biography of yeah. a book. Yes. And yeah. I want you. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, this is an unusual book, Sandhya, because it's not a biography of a person. Uh, fundamentally, it's it in essence is a biography of a book. It's a biography of a poem, uh, and uh, through the poem, I also tell the biography of the author of the poem because you can't divorce, uh, you know, the poem from the yeah. author. Uh, so it's not so much a biography of you know when you say biography, it means of a person, right? Right. Uh, but the, the central figure in this book is this poem, uh, The Light of Asia, you know, which was published in 1879, uh, which was on the life of the Buddha. Uh, and uh, it's a biography of that poem. Uh, it's a literary biography, a cultural biography, political biography, social biography. But I could not, uh, I could not avoid uh, telling the story of the poem, of the author, you know, uh-huh. the, of the poem. So it's a it's a dual it's a two in one it's a biography of a poem, and it's also a biography of a poet. So it's a, it's an unusual book, and it's something that I, you know, the Light of Asia is a poem that I read uh, when I was I must have been uh, fifteen years old when I first read it. Uh, yeah, I must have been fifteen when I first I probably. Must have read this book first in Chikmagalore Library. You know, I used to go to the public library very, very, very frequently when I was. In, I used to spend three to four months of my childhood when I was in school in Chikmagalore with my grandparents. So I'm pretty sure I must have read it. I, I owned a copy at home, but I'm pretty sure I read it when I was 15. You know, 15 or 16 in Chikmagalore Public Library, Krishna Rajendra Public Library. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so it's a poem that's you know sort of it defined who the Buddha was, it defined the life of the Buddha, uh, and it became extraordinarily influential in England, in America, in Europe, in India. Uh, it you know it had literary impacts, it had social impacts, uh, it had political impacts. Uh, it, India's first silent film was called The Light of Asia, made in 1925 by Himanshu Rai and Sita Devi. Uh, and that was based on the light of Asia. So uh, I was intrigued, you know, uh, when I was very, very intrigued. And also uh, the fact that, uh, you know, the light of Asia was a very important book in the life of Nehru. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very important. You know, Nehru was, uh, was uh, a great admirer. Uh, if at all he was a bhakt, he was a Buddha bhakt. Okay. You know? Uh, he was really he was not a Buddhist, but he was a great like every Indian. You know, sort of Buddha is hardwired into all of us. Uh, and Gandhi, for Gandhi, 
the uh, one the, the perhaps the book that remained with gandhi all his life uh, is the english translation of the bhagavad gita <clears throat> which was called the song celestial which was by edwin arnold who wrote the light of asia so both for gandhi and nehru edwin arnold is a very important figure is a very important figure for vivekananda a very important figure for tagore cv raman uh, you know great name in bangalore raman research institute cv raman is one of the three books that influenced cv raman the most when he was a young man you know one of the books was euclid's geometry and the other one was arnold's light of asia right uh, so uh, this book is a is it's that way it's an unusual book i mean i enjoyed writing it uh, it was covid it was lockdown <laughs> you know difficult days difficult months uh, and uh, the art, my archival access was all done digitally you know uh, and i had archives in the us archives in uk uh, archives of course in india um, archives in germany you know Uh, and amazing you won't believe it uh, sadhya uh, i got all the archival material digitally you know fantastic uh, i got it it's amazing you know but you you've just had to spend time you know just you know, the and, and energy uh, to track down people oh i got by the way i got some material from australia uh, oh. a lot of material from sri lanka a lot of material from thailand are you a buddhist yourself no no i'm not a buddhist in fact i i explain at the end uh, of the book that i am not a buddhist uh, i am not a uh, you know i'm i'm not a follower of buddhism but you know every indian has the dna of every indian buddha is present you know buddha is part of our life you know there's something remarkable about the buddha the way buddha looks uh, you know the life of the buddha the humanity of the buddha not the divinity of buddha But the humanity of buddha the compassion the tolerance you know but uh, yes i mean if there's one figure that i'm profoundly profoundly uh, influenced by like many indians um, um, you know it would be buddha i've said in the book that the buddha became the buddha by not following a buddha and that's what you know that's what buddha's message is right um, you know the light is within you become your own guide become your own mentor search within you search for yourself so buddha didn't follow any formula you know uh, he didn't follow any guru you know he didn't follow any great you know theological school buddha is that way very unique very unique character and what edwin arnold does in this poem the light of asia uh, is he defined the life of the buddha the poem was not on buddhism the poem was not on buddhist philosophy or buddhist religion it was on the personality of prince siddhartha who later on becomes buddha mm. and that's why it had such a great impact you know by dealing not with the divinity of buddha but by dealing with the humanity of buddha uh, i think what anand did and remember this poem was published at a time when science was blossoming there was a lot of questioning of organized christianity and and buddha was seen to be this christ like figure pre christ christ like figure you know 
uh, in terms of personality. You know? um, and, uh, and that's why I think the poem had such a great impact. You know, it got translated uh, into 13 European languages. It got translated into seven or eight uh, Asian languages. And it got translated into 11 or 12 Indian languages, you know, Malayalam, Telugu, Tamil, Kannada, Hindi, Assamese, Odia, Marathi, Gujarati, Punjabi, Sindhi, you know, you name the language and you'll, you'll have the translation of, of the light of Asia. And it became, Sandhya, in the 1910s and the 1920s, it became inspiration for a number of social reformers in India, uh, particularly in Kerala and Tamil Nadu. Uh, you know, Srinara and a guru who founded the SNDP. Uh, and then there were Eothi Das and Lakshmi Narasu in, in what was then Madras. Uh, you know, the life, light of Asia, what they took out of the poem, what they took out of the life of the Buddha was his uh, rejection of the caste system. Uh, and that's why this this also became a very important text for Ambedkar. Uh, and Ambedkar, you know, I, I, there's a photograph in the book about Ambedkar's private library. Uh, mm. And in that, there are two copies uh, of The Light of Asia. Uh, and then I discussed this with a scholar of Dr. Ambedkar. And he said, sir, you're wrong. He didn't have two copies. He had three copies. <laughs> Unfortunately, I couldn't, get, I couldn't get a photo of the third copy, but I got certainly got a copy a photograph of the two copies, a very nice photograph. And so therefore, you know, these people took the message of caste equality, the rejection of the caste system and of Brahminical practices of that time. So uh, the light of Asia was more than just a poem. You know, it, it became a defining text for social reformers. It became a way of educated Indians to feel proud of the Buddha, which is part of the Indian civilizational legacy. Remember, you know, this poem came out at a time when we were still in British rule. You know, we were, this was a colonial production, so to speak. So anything that put India and Indians in good light, uh, although technically speaking, Prince Siddhartha was born in what is now Nepal. And the Nepalese don't like <laughs> India saying that you know buddha was born in india technically technically yeah, but uh, buddha is india so it's all right i mean siddhartha was born in the indian subcontinent but don't tell that to any of your friends in nepal <laughs> because you know they are very possessive <laughs> about the fact that siddhartha was born uh, in what is now geographically so uh, it's a fascinating poem. You know, it's a, he was a, Edwin Arnold was a fascinating figure. Uh, as I said, he translated the Bhagavad Gita, which became uh, Gandhi's favorite book. He translated the Hitopadesha. He translated the Gita Govinda. He translated the Mahabharata. In the late 19th century, one of the great popularizers of Indian literature and Indian cultural, you know, legacies was Sir Edwin Arnold. He was on the one side a Victorian imperialist, hmm. a believer in British rule in India. On the other side, he spent all his time translating ancient Sanskrit books uh, into English, you know. And not only Sanskrit, later on he ended up translating Persian, Turkish, Arabic, Japanese, but his his abiding love was Sanskrit literature. You know, if you look at it from today's perspective, 
he was a colonial figure he was a figure who believed in the british empire uh, you know he was a person who uh, believed in, uh, in britain's destiny uh, to to bring modernity uh, uh, to countries like india but at the same time he was acutely conscious and aware uh, of india's rich cultural legacy since you've been writing this um, you know historical biographies what is your opinion about what is known as cancel culture now and for example you talked about the author of this poem right so he's an imperialist he was a colonialist should be according to cancel culture then we should be rejecting him just because we reject the colonialism and the imperialism no i see what you're meaning no i you know these are part of history uh, you know uh, sadhya i mean i would have been happier if there was a cousin road in india i lived uh, for 3 years on a road which is every three wheeler person would always refer to as cousin road mm-hmm. but it had been renamed kasturwa gandhi mark you know mm-hmm. uh, but cousin is as much very much a figure of indian history you know so uh, yeah i mean Uh, I'm somewhat ambivalent on this. I am not one for that. I mean, I, I, by the way, I've mentioned it in the book that Bangalore is one of the few places in the world, uh, one of the very few places in India which still has a statue of Queen Victoria. Right. You know, Bangalore has still a statue of still standing. You know, uh, in, a, in a prominent place. Uh, and thank God for that. You know. <laughs> so I, I am not. I differ with my friend Shashi Tharoor. You know. Uh, Shashi has taken the view that uh, British rule was all darkness for India. Uh, I don't subscribe to that view. You know, I I think that um, uh, uh, you know there was, of course, there was imperialism, there was colonialism, uh, but in a very curious way, uh, the British made us aware of our own past. We had forgotten about the Buddha. We had forgotten about Ashoka. You know, <laughs> and we rediscovered. we need to discover ourselves which is what struck me so i i am not a great believer in renaming roads bringing down statues you know mm-hmm. no i it's a difficult because there are some people who are awful figures no doubt about it you know um, you know there are some awful figures uh, and um, but i suppose um, this is the process of rewriting history you know i mean one of the figures one of there's a photograph in this book about cecil rhodes uh, mm-hmm. and uh, cecil rhodes is very much in the news nowadays in england because right. uh, there's a movement to remove his statue in front right. of royal college in, in oxford right uh, you know i mean i'm ambivalent on it i mean so what you can't erase his name out you can only remain erasing a statue by removing queen victoria statue in bangalore Uh, is Bangalore benefiting by it? No, can you just airbrush Queen Victoria away? She's very much part of our history. You no, know? right. I would rather we, I, I'd rather we confront it. I'd rather we face it. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we look at the positive sides. We look at the negative sides. You know, and uh, uh, along with British rule uh, uh, came a large number of scholars. You know, and these scholars did not have a political agenda. I mean, Edwin Arnold, for example, I would say he didn't. His political agenda was not. You know, is okay. He had. He believed in British rule, but uh, to say that he rediscovered the Buddha, to say that he translated the Bhagavad Gita, 
to perpetuate british rule in india i think it boggles the imagination so you know i i you know to that extent i i part company with my very good friend shashi tharoor and others Okay, all right. I hope people who see your program get to read the book because it's an interesting book. Uh, it's a book about a phase of Indian history, political history, cultural history uh, of India becoming sensitive and aware of its own rich and glorious past. There are many mythological figures. I mean, I make a distinction between Lord Rama and Buddha. Buddha is a historical figure. Lord Rama is a mythological figure. I mean, we worship. Lord Rama, um, my name is Jay Rama. <laughs> I was born on Ram Navami, so that's why my grandmother named me Jay Rama. And Ram is very much part of our lives. But Ram is a mythological figure uh, to be venerated, uh, to be respected, uh, to be admired, to be followed. But Buddha is a historical figure, you know, uh, and um, is the most fascinating historical figure, you know. and i think arnold brought that out beautifully and i hope i have done justice uh, to this extraordinary poem uh, which is still very much uh, very much active uh, across the world wonderful thank you so much for your thank time you. jaram ramesh thank you sanjay you can also view the interview as a video on the raintree media youtube channel until i'm back next week with another interesting guest take care and bye bye Do subscribe to the Raintree Media channel on YouTube. Like, comment and share the videos.